last Lord's Day, we looked at the church triumphant with regard to her structure and strength in verses 9 through 14. And if you've forgotten, or if I say that and you say, well, I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me when I read verses 9 through 14, then you can go back and listen to that recording. We're considering the church. All of this, again, is opening up what John has already stated, specifically that in the glorified state, in eternity, there will be a new creation, the absence of all of the curse, and God dwelling with His people. Now last week we asked this question, before we begin, what gives the church its enduring strength and character? What has caused the church to last so far uh, nearly 2,000 years? What is it about the church that, that for some reason in certain places they, there might be uh, authorities and men who think they have stamped it out and just when they've gotten this, this uh, smoke stamped out here, this smoldering stamped out, and another spark lights over here and, and the church continues to flourish and continues to grow everywhere, what, what causes that? What is it about the church, especially in its in its local manifestation, what is it about the church that causes people like us, when we run into other people, to think in the back of our minds, man, these people, they would really benefit from a good, healthy church. What is it that, that, that does that? And we answered basically with, with five things. First, the church is the bride of Christ. Secondly, the church is built by God. It's not built by men. It's not something that men have thrown together over the centuries. It's something that God is building. Thirdly, the church is the dwelling place of God. Fourthly, the church is the place of communion with God. And fifthly, the church is built upon the truth concerning the nature of Christ. And at the very least, we ought to be able to see that the strength and endurance of the church is not found in those who make up her number. The church is not strong because of me. The church is not strong because of you. The church does not grow and flourish because of John MacArthur or Paul Washer or John Calvin or John Knox. The church is strong and endures and has this strength because of who God is, because of who Christ is, is because of what God has done in Jesus Christ to save a people through the shedding of His blood. That's what has, has given rise to this thing that we call the church. It's not us, it's Him. It's union with Christ by the Holy Spirit which guarantees the church's eternal existence. That Christ who is the same yesterday and today and forever, that Holy Spirit who is God, that Holy Spirit who is the Spirit of Christ, that's what will cause the strength or the church to endure and even today gives the church its, its strength and character. That was last Lord's Day. Now today, we're still looking at the church triumphant, but now we're looking at the church with regard to its measurements and material. So last week, week was strength and character. Now it's measurements and materials. So first, it's measurements. We see this in verses 15 to 17. It's measurements. There is no construction without measuring. If there is, 
it's probably not going to be very good construction. Every carpenter has a measuring tape somewhere. He's thinking, I know I've got one somewhere, six or eight of them. Somewhere I've got a measuring tape. Most tool belts that you see at the store, they come pre-made with a special pouch for the measuring tape because if this man is going to wear this belt and do these things, he needs a measuring tape. When you go to Lowe's or Home Depot, wood comes in certain lengths. You look for a particular length of wood, 6 feet, 8 feet, 10 feet, 12 feet. Screws come in certain lengths. Do I need a 1-inch screw? Do I need a 2.5-inch screw? Well, I need to know what I'm screwing together and therefore I have to measure. When you pour concrete, concrete is measured by the yard. There's measurements. There is no construction without measuring. One of the most important pieces of information in building or constructing anything comes in terms of measurements. And so we see here this holy city is described in terms of its measurements. And the first thing we notice about the measurements of the city is just that it is measured. Look at verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. Now we've seen this before in the Revelation. And when we saw it in the Revelation, we went elsewhere in the Scriptures to sort of build up a, a, a theology of measuring in the Scriptures. We studied a couple other passages, or at least read them. And I'm going I'm to read two Old Testament texts here. First from Jeremiah 31. What does it mean to measure something in, in God's construction? Jeremiah 31, verses 38 to 40. The measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hill of Gareb, and shall then turn to Goa, the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes, and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron, to the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be sacred to the Lord. Measure it, it shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. So when God measures something, it's not that He gets out His measuring tape and says, I'm really interested in you know, the, the length and the height and the width of this thing. When God measures something, at least in this perspective, this text, it means to mark that thing as sacred to the Lord. And that thing which is being measured, because it is sacred to the Lord, shall never be overthrown anymore, forever. Another text, Zechariah chapter 1, verses 14 to 17. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy... My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Crowd again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion. And again, choose Jerusalem. There, the measuring line meant God applying His mercy to this specific place, the building of the temple. It meant the Lord's comfort coming upon the people. So this measuring, when used of the people of God, means to set them apart as a protected people. A people sacred to the Lord. A people who will receive the comforts of the Lord. A people, as we saw in chapter 11, a people kept. That's what it means. These are not actual measurements. Now what that does is, 
it releases us from any obligation to then try to figure out exactly what this city is going to look like or to try to draw, try to draw a picture of it and, and, and make sense of it. That's not the point here. The point is to show us that God is marking something off as sacred to Him, as kept, and as the object of His mercy. Now, I said that we saw this in chapter 11, so it helps at this point to contrast what we're seeing here with what we saw in chapter 11. In chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, very similar language. It says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and those who worship there, people, but do not measure the court outside the temple. That would have been a part of the temple precinct. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city. That would have been the area surrounding the temple. They'll trample the holy city for 42 months. And in chapter 11, there was a small portion that was measured and kept, and yet the broad majority of the city was given over to be trampled. And you remember we talked in that text about the church in the present age as a kept and yet given over entity. The Lord says, you're sacred to me. I will keep you. I will comfort you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And yet in the present age, you're also given over to much suffering and affliction. Now, the church is kept and yet given over. What we're seeing in Revelation 21 is, then the church is kept finally and fully there's no more suffering. Here, there's no part that's left unmeasured. It's all measured, the, the entirety. This present age is the age of the suffering church. This is the time where the church, like the Apostle Paul, fills up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. We live in the time where the disciples of Christ are expected and commanded to take up their cross and follow Him. A cross is not a, an instrument of pleasure. A cross is an instrument of suffering. That's what we are required to do. But what we see here is, someday, all of that's going to come to an end. Suffering at the present time is for our sanctification. We endure trials and tests and afflictions to make us more holy, to make us like our Savior. We endure these trials, as we say many times, to, to pry our fingers off of the things of this world, to, to, to shake loose the tent pegs that we have driven deeply into the soil of this present age so that we'll long for heaven, we'll long for glory. We, we, we just get tired of the affliction, tired of the suffering. But glorification, which is what we're seeing here, is the end of all suffering. Some people, in a, you might read a systematic theology where they refer to glorification as final sanctification or, or total sanctification. In other words, the, the process is brought to its completion. And this should increase our longing for the return of Christ. We want it to end. And this is what all suffering does. Right now we're given over. But what does that do? It causes us to long for, for this day when Christ will return. And that's always characterized the people of God. This great longing. Some of the last words that we'll see in the Scriptures... Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. They understood it. We're here. We know we're kept. We don't say, well, that's fine. We kind of like the affliction. No. We, we understand it's something we must endure for a time. So here we see this city, this glorified church. It's measured completely. 
kept for God, by God, forever, never to suffer again. Next, the holy city, as it's being measured, we, we get a glimpse of its form. Its form. First, we see the perimeter measured in verse 16. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. And if you've got a Bible with footnotes there, you might see 12,000 stadia is equal to about 1,380 miles. Some commentators suggest maybe closer to 1,500 miles. And men have debated, the opinions vary as to whether this 12,000 stadia is this Each wall, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. Or is this the complete perimeter, 12,000 stadia for all of the walls? Remember, the point is not, what is the exact size of this city? That's not the point. The point is really that number, 12,000. Remember, 12 reminds us of the people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel of the Old Covenant, the 12 apostles of Christ of the New Covenant. It's always a, a, a reminder. It, it, it puts in our mind a picture of people, God's people. Uh, 1,000, a very high, quantitatively complete number. 12,000, a very high, quantitatively complete number of the people of God. This is all of the people of God. This would be... An exact parallel to the statement in Revelation 7 and verse 9. A multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. That's, that's, that's what this is. You say, well, it says it's, he's measuring the square and the, the whole city. Well, again, it's people. The vision is the people as the dwelling place of God. Now, more significant than even that is the shape of the city. Verse 16b, its length and width and height are equal. That means it's a cube. City is a cube. You say, that's a strange city. Exactly. It's not meant to be taken literally. Now, there's only one other cube in the Bible, the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar, the holy of holies. Remember, the resting place of the ark of of the covenant of God was a cube. The ark of the covenant, the place where the presence of God would come and rest in the midst of His people there on that mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant inside this cubicle holy of holies. Now remember back in chapter 11 again, after John describes the final judgment. It says in verse 19, God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of His Covenant was seen within His temple. It's like he looked up and he got a little glimpse of the temple and the Ark of the Covenant there. Now, in chapter 21, John has been taken up, as it were, into this heavenly dwelling place of God. And you might imagine that he imagines to see, or he expects to see, that ark that he got a glimpse of before. But now he doesn't see an ark of the covenant in the temple. He sees an entire city, a brand new Jerusalem, and the whole thing is shaped like the Holy of Holies. But again, the city is people. It's the church. It's the people of God. And so, what do we make of this, the shape of this city? Go back to verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God 
is with man. That's the point. In the glorified state, there is no place where God's presence is to be found, but there are people with whom God's presence dwells for all of eternity. God dwelling with His people. Next we see the wall. Now, last week we talked about the significance of the wall as representing the inviolable communion that we have with God. I said, here's a correction, I said after the Babylonian captivity when the people came back, they built the walls first and then built the temple. That's wrong. They came back first, built the temple, then built the walls around Jerusalem. In case anybody was thrown off by that or scratching their head all week, like my Bible has Ezra before Nehemiah. That was, that was my mistake. The point remains the same. The walls were built to protect, to keep in what is cherished, to keep out what is dangerous. Notice the measurements of these walls, verse 17. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Now, I'm not even going to try to touch the last part of that phrase. You say, what is an angel's measurement? I'm going to say, well, it sounds like it's a human measurement. We'll leave it at that, 144 cubits. That would be approximately 216 feet. Now again, if you're trying to picture this thing, you think, well, we've got walls that are a city that's 1,500 miles high. And if you read this as height, you would say, well, 216 feet is not a very high wall compared to that, the height of the city. It would look kind of odd. Verse 12 said that it is a great high wall. So some say that this 216 feet is actually the thickness of the wall. The precise measurements are not the point. Either way you look at it. It's that root. 12. 144 is what? It's 12 squared. Again, it represents the people of God. All of these references to the number 12 are reminders of the people of God. The city, again, is the church. The church is people. And again, it's driving home this one singular idea. The dwelling place of God is with man. God with His people. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. God Himself will be with them as their God. This whole chapter, God and His people, the people and their God, locked in, closed off, protected, kept from all harm with God forever. No tears, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain, no affliction, no suffering. The people and their God forever. Trials in the present age produce steadfastness. In the coming age, steadfastness will be no more. There will be no more perseverance. There will be no more endurance. There will be no more striving. There will be no more long-suffering. We will be at perfect peace because we'll have glorified minds, glorified eyes, fixed forever on our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, people and their God. God and His people. It is a people measured, kept. God says they're sacred to me. They're mine. I made them mine by the blood of my Son. Now I will keep them as mine forever. Secondly, we see its materials. The materials that go into making this city, verses 18 to 21. First, there's the wall. 
The wall was built of jasper. Jasper we saw in verse 11. Uh, good luck if you try to Google any of these stones because it seems like all of these stones come in a plethora of different colors depending on what uh, specific kind you might find. Again, the color is not important. It's rather the, the clarity of that stone. In verse 11, we saw jasper as clear as crystal with a, a beautiful glowing radiance. In chapter 4, jasper was one of the stones that was used to describe the very glory of God Himself, the effulgence of God's own glory. And so here we see this city, and the wall of this city, takes on the same effulgence as God Himself. This wall bears the very glowing image of God. It's made of jasper. Then we see the city itself. The city was pure gold like clear glass. Gold obviously pointing to great wealth. Gold is the metal of royalty. And so no other metal, no other stone, or if you want to call it stone, metal, nothing else would be an adequate material to construct the city of the great king. Solomon's temple and a lot of the construction that he built was overlaid with gold. Remember it said in Solomon's day, silver was nothing. You try to trade with silver, well, what's that to me? You might as well scoop up a hand of gravel. That's worthless. Because gold was so plentiful. He would overlay things with gold. But here this city, the glory church is all gold. All glorious. Not overlaid, but pure gold. A dwelling place fit for the king of the ages. As for its foundations, remember there were twelve. Verses 19 to 20, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. Twelve foundations adorned with twelve stones. Now, if we take into account what we would expect would be some alternate names of these stones as cultures shifted and titles changed, most are in agreement that this list of 12 stones is meant to parallel the 12 stones which adorned the breastplate of the high priest of Israel. Now, of that breastplate, we read this in Exodus chapter 28. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. That would be the people. And in the breastplate of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. And so there the high priest acted as a mediator. And he bore the names of the people of God in his service as he went into the holy places. The high priest was the only one who could enter into the most holy place. And so here we see, when we make this, this we, we, we tether these two things together, the entire people is the holy of holies. They themselves constitute the very adornment of the foundations of this city. As for the gates, 
Verse 21, the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. Twelve, representing the people of God. Pearls, another precious, costly, we could say stone. We know that a pearl is not technically a stone. In other words, the entrance to this city, the gates, exclusive to the people of God. Then we see the street. 21b, the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. The most valuable of earthly metals forms the walking path of the New Jerusalem. In other words, we might say the value system of earth is erased. The treasure of this city is God Himself, not the streets. It's God. The streets are paved. We, we as it were, walk on gold. What's the point? Again, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. Now think about this. Go back to chapter 1. God has given this vision to His Son to give to His angel, to give to John, to record for those seven churches and all of the churches of the first century all the way down through the ages to us so that we could have God's perspective on the church of glory. What does God say will be our, our beauty and our adorning and what will make up this heavenly city? This might not be how we describe ourselves now. When we look out at the church, we, we might not think that it's very glorious now, but someday it will be and this is how God sees it. God Himself says this bride, this church is gloriously adorned. She's arrayed in all manner of costly stones. She's precious to Him. Her value in God's market is unable to be calculated. Now again, is that because the people that make her up are just so intrinsically valuable? Of course not. Remember, God made us out of the dirt that He made Himself, that He created. The value of this bride is found in the price that was paid for her by her bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, in shedding His blood for the church. Now, I want to call your attention back to those twelve stones which adorn the twelve foundations. Twelve stones which hearken back to the high priest's breastplate. The use of these stones to adorn the high priest did not originate with the nation of Israel. In Ezekiel 28, we read of one who was adorned with a very similar adorning in the Garden of Eden. And that one in Eden, adorned as a priest, was placed as a guard in the Garden of Eden. And then we read that he was cast from God's mountain, Eden, when he sinned. And many have seen this as a description of Adam, the first priest king of the first temple dwelling place of God on the earth. In the casting out of Adam from Eden, the entire human race contained in his loins were thrust from the presence of our just and righteous Creator. We were cut off from everything good when Adam was cast away from God. Then later, the high priest of Israel was adorned with 
precious stones prescribed by God. He didn't say go pick out some colors. He says these stones, and he names them. Put them into the breastplate. And that priest would wear that breastplate as he served in the tabernacle and in the temple. Remember, the nation, the people of the nation could not enter there because they were sinners. There was only one who could enter into the Holy of Holies, the high priest, that is, into God's presence. And he did not enter for himself only. Wearing the breastplate was a reminder, yes, to the people, but also to him. I've not come here just on my own errand. I've come here for the people. And the stones were engraved with names. If he happened to glance down, he would be able to see the names of the tribes that he represented. What was that picture? The picture is that the people have sinned. And there must be a reckoning. Atonement must be made. But even in making an atonement, there was not a man worthy to enter into God's presence to perform such a service. And so God ordains this system where one man could come and stand in the presence of God as a representative for the people of God, but only after He made atonement for His own sins. And even then at the risk of death. And as a part of His official God-ordained garments, He bore the names of His brethren on His heart. So that as He made the sacrifice, He did so as an actor for them. As He entered into the most holy place, He did so in their place. As He sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat, He does so with the people of God on His heart. His entrance, His actions, His performance, all was counted as theirs because He bore their names upon His chest. Of course, you know all of this was a shadow pointing to Jesus Christ who is the great high priest. He never wore a linen ephod or served as high priest. He was from the tribe of Judah. He was a priest of a different order as we just saw of David. He was a a king priest. He never wore a breastplate with stones upon it. But rather, he went even further He took to Himself the nature of men. He did not wear a breastplate of stones, but He wrapped Himself in our flesh and bones. He did not kill any bulls or goats for us, but rather He laid down His own life as the atonement for our sins. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Following His death, Christ entered into the heavenly holy place by means of His own blood. And again, He entered not wearing a breastplate of gold and adorned with precious stones, but He entered clothed in the nature of men. 
And when He entered that heavenly holy of holies, bearing upon Himself the nature of a man, He did so on behalf of men. Wearing that flesh, He knows that He stands and acts, not simply for Himself, but for those whom He represents. His entrance into God's presence was our entrance into God's presence. His blood sprinkled was an atonement for our sins. So that even now, in Christ, we have, as Paul would say, we've been seated in heavenly places. His presence at the right hand of God is as our presence. Hebrews 7, 24, He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Verse 25, He always lives to make intercession for them. If you could see Jesus Christ this very moment, you would see Him in the midst of the heavenly dwelling place of God and seeing Him, you would see your representation, your advocate, your surety. His being there as, is as your being there if you're a Christian. Now what does that have to do with Revelation 21? That's the question. Well, by the time we get to Revelation 21, remember we're seeing beyond the history of redemption. We're seeing the church in her triumphant and glorified state. And here, we don't see one who merely stands as our substitute. We don't see a high priest wearing a breastplate of stones. Here we get to see the final installment in the history of redemption. We see the very stones themselves adorning the city. The very people of God there as the dwelling place of God. In other words... The fullness of Christ's work on our behalf has been reached. It's reached the zenith. The end of the matter has been stated here. There is not merely representation in the heavenly dwelling place in glory, but we ourselves are the dwelling place of God. As we saw in chapter 3, in verse 12, the one who conquers... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall never go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. You see, in the old covenant, the priests bore the names of the people. Now Christ goes and bears the names of His people, but in glory we will bear the name of our God written upon us. Conquerors here we see become permanent structural fixtures in the heavenly dwelling of God Himself. And that's our great hope. And it's due only to the work of Jesus Christ, our great High Priest. That which He began to do in you, He will bring it through to completion. And completion is not, well, I'll just get you to death. Completion is, I'll make you the very dwelling place of God for all of eternity. So, hopefully, anytime you hear a sermon or a, a message or you read anything about heaven, hopefully your heart is, is lifted a little. We like heaven. We look forward to heaven. We long for heaven. So let me ask this question. What makes you think that you will be a part of this heavenly dwelling place of God? What makes you think you're going to go to heaven? Anybody, I would suggest, perhaps with a few odd exceptions, likes the idea of heaven. 
whatever concept they might have of heaven, heaven, H-E-A-V-E-N, that is typically a good thing, a positive thing. Everybody who dies, it seems, so we say this many times, it seems everybody who dies around here goes to heaven. We get together for a funeral, and all we want to talk about is somebody's in heaven. That, those are good thoughts. But again, the question is, what makes anybody think they're going to be here? What makes you think that you'll be a part of this heaven? Why, when we speak of heaven, why does that stir up positive thoughts in your mind and soul? Rather than despair and hopelessness. Who do you think you are that you would read of these precious stones and then say, well, yeah, that'll, be, that'll be me, I'll be there. Who do you think you are? I don't think anybody in this room is under the impression that everyone goes to heaven, right? Perhaps you just think that everybody in this room will go to heaven. You think, nah, I don't, I don't really want to go that far. Perhaps you think that everybody on your pew is going, is going to be in heaven. Perhaps you think that everybody who lives in your household will go to heaven. Why do we think that? Why do we assume that? Well, again, who do we think that we are? Our natural state in Adam has not predisposed us heavenward. We did not come out of the womb walking towards heaven. Complete opposite. We come out of the womb running headlong towards hell in rebellion against God. And yet when we begin to speak of heaven, everybody thinks they're going to be there. Why do you think you're going to be a part of this celestial city? Who do you think that you are that you would lay claim to this vision? Several things. Number one, only the work of Jesus Christ is adequate to get into heaven. Only Christ. His doing, His dying. His obedience, His oblation. That's it. Only Christ. Secondly, no one goes to heaven because they've been good enough. That's not even an option. God hasn't put that on the table for us. We lost that. Adam broke that covenant. It's over. So then thirdly, the only ones who will make up this heavenly city are those who see in themselves nothing worthy of it and have looked outside of themselves to Jesus Christ and have believed and trusted that only His work is sufficient. It is only those who venture their never dying souls upon Jesus Christ who enter heaven because only Jesus Christ is able and worthy to carry any man's name into the presence of God. Only Christ. If you're not a Christian, let me remind you of what you already know. Just think about your life this past week. Think about how you've spoken to people. Even in your own household. Think of the things that have come out of your mouth to those who are the nearest to you. Think about the thoughts that you've had in secret or maybe words that you've said in secret that you would, would be embarrassed if anybody in this room knew that, that you had said them. 
thoughts that you had had, things that you have done in secret that you say, well, I hope the people at church don't know about that stuff. Think about how little, just in the past six days, think about how little you have thought about the God who pumps air into your lungs and blood through your heart. Every beat He gives it. And think about how little God has consumed your thoughts. You know this. You know this is true about yourself. And you know deep down you're doomed. In your sins, you're dead where you sit. You know it. I'm just reminding you of what you already know. Now there are a lot of people who, these things characterize them, but they still hear of heaven and they say, well, I'll be there. I mean, I might live this way, but, but I'll, I'll be there. To that I would say, why do you want to be there? What you're essentially saying is, I'm going to go to be with that liar for all of eternity. God, who said, there is a holiness without which no man will see God. No man will see Him without this, this worked out holiness applied and worked through the Spirit. God who says, when you come to know me, I make you live differently. I create a new creature. But you're saying, I'm not new. I act like a devil, but I'm going to be in heaven. You want to be with the liar for all of eternity. It's, it's, it's blasphemy and it's foolish. Let me plead with you. Look at this Jesus, this high priest. His life was holy. His speech was undefiled. His thoughts, from the very moment he even had the, the conception of his own individual thought, down to the very last thought he had, into your hands I commit my spirit. His thoughts were perfect. His devotion to God, impeccable. It was almost like the man couldn't sleep through the night without getting up and giving some devotion and communion to his God, his Father. His death was to pay for sins. Look at him. Stop trusting in yourself and trust him. Would you reach out in faith and take him to be yours? When you take Christ, all that he's done becomes yours. You'll find your name etched upon his heart. Jesus himself said, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. God in Christ has already issued the invitation. God has placarded his son on the cross, nailed with thorns. As if to say, here he is, free for the taking. Just take him. Here he is. All the nations coming in and out of the city. Look at him and take him. God has put him forth. If you will simply trust in him, you'll be saved. And that and that alone is the only reason why any Christian can have a hope of heaven. Can hear of heaven. The bride of Christ. The city of God. Communion with God. Inviolable communion with God. Precious stones higher than we can even imagine. A cube, a dwelling place that we can hear all of that. And it doesn't drive us into the dirt in despair. The only reason is because we have one who's entered into the heavenly holy places on our behalf. Our names are on his chest. Our names are on his shoulders. As the song says, our names graven upon his hands. The wounds that he bears are as if they were. our names were written there. That's why. 
When you ask a Christian, what, who do you think you are? A Christian says, I don't think I'm anybody. I have one who's there for me. That's my only hope. If you're not a Christian, look to Him. That's our only hope. Let's pray.